Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Let's continue in prayer, please. Father, we do gather today in your name. We gather as those who have truly been made sharers of a, of a salvation that we can barely begin to get our heads around. And we ask that you would forgive us that we have such a, a slight, such a simplistic understanding of what you have accomplished, what it means for us to be sharers in the Messiah, what it means for us to be partakers and stewards of your life. Father, we, we so need for you to consume our hearts and our minds, our longings, with the things that we've even considered this morning, the things that filled Paul's heart. The longing to see your purposes for all things fully consummated. The longing even with respect to ourselves to see the day come when we are fully summed up in the Messiah. Our longing is not to be free of this world, to be free of our bodies, to be catapulted off in our spirits to heaven. We do long to be in your presence in that way, to be present with Christ, which is better by far. But we long to be clothed with that everlasting fullness that you have ordained for us, that you have reserved for us. And to attain to the full inheritance that is ours, not because of us or because of what we have done, but because of your goodness and power and the marvelous wisdom and grace that has been given to us in Christ from all eternity. Father, make us a contemplative people. Free us up from the distractions and the preoccupations of our days, however needful, however important. Give us an arbor of rest and contemplation and meditation in the midst of the hill difficulty. That we would be nourished, that we would be strengthened. That we would be built up in truth and in joy and in peace. Father, we thank you for your hand of, of healing that you have brought to those uh, in our body and, and those uh, uh, 
more distant from our body, but, but connected with our congregation who have suffered sickness and, and even sickness to the point of death. We thank you for your hand of healing and we pray for each one that, that this season of weakness, of incapacity, of frailty and perhaps even fear of the imminence of death would be made fruitful in, in, an, in a renewed sense of humility and dependence and gratitude. Father, we can only be benefited and profited to the, uh, by becoming ever more aware of, of our weakness, ever more aware that we live with you as children of a heavenly Father. You give, we receive. And we receive with open hands, we receive with open hearts, we receive with all gratitude. From your wise and and good providence, your wise and good gifts. Father, may we be faithful in these days. And even as we return to the Hebrews epistle this morning, I pray that you would Enable us to profit from the words of this writer in the way that he intended for his readers to. As they dealt with trouble and hardship and loss, even imprisonment, doubts, insecurities, he intended that a renewed and a refreshed, a strengthened vision of Christ would minister to their hope, their stability, their perseverance, their faith. And so I pray that it will be true of us as well. Meet us in our need, minister to us in our weakness, build us up in Christ as you have purposed according to the riches of your grace in him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, again, we've been considering the the priesthood of Jesus and and all of the ways in which that priesthood transcended the Levitical priesthood that preceded it and and that prepared for it. And I've said several times that the writer's ultimate goal was not simply to uh, enable his readers to have a better sense of what it means that Jesus is a priest, but to ultimately get to the significance of that, which he saw as pointing ultimately to the covenant associated with that priesthood. Priesthood is the basis of covenant, and therefore, as the writer is uh, fleshing out this priestly significance, this priestly role and work of Jesus, he did so ultimately to show how he is, in fact, the mediator of a better covenant. Chapter 7, verse 11, he says, If perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to an entirely different order, the order of Melchizedek, and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also, and by law he means covenant ultimately. The law of Moses was the covenant with Israel. So I'd like to read uh, with you all uh, chapter 8, 
uh, beginning with verse 1 through the first eight verses. Last time we considered the first five verses where he brings his summary assessment of the priesthood. And then he says this better ministration ultimately points to a better covenant based on better promises. And then he fleshes out, uh, or doesn't so much flesh out, but he expresses or explains what he means by that by referring to Jeremiah's prophecy in chapter 31. The longest citation in the book of Hebrews from the Old Testament. A book, obviously an epistle filled with citations, but his citation from Jeremiah 31 is the longest in all the book of Hebrews. Very significant. Um, Initially, I thought maybe we could complete chapter 8 just in one session, but what I want to do is just slow down a little bit and, and deal with some introductory initial considerations as he transitions from this idea of the priesthood into uh, the covenant associated with Jesus' priesthood. And so all I want to consider today is verses 6 through 8, but I'd like to read the first eight verses just to again set the context. The writer says, now the main point in what's been said is this, we have such a high priest, what high priest? The one he's been describing the priest king, who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, the one who is a minister in the sanctuary, which is to say the true tabernacle, which is the one that the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices in connection with the sanctuary. Hence, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. But if he were on the earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, the Levitical priests, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. He said, see that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he, the Messiah, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first one, that first covenant, had been faultless, then there would have been no occasion, no place, no reason for a second. But finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And that's the beginning of his citation from Jeremiah 31. So Lord willing, we'll deal with uh, the Jeremiah context the next time and try to uh, uh, sort that out in its own context and in terms of its fulfillment in the Messiah. But I want to uh, do some introductory work in that regard today. The first thing is with respect to this idea of covenant and how it relates to Jesus' better priesthood and his ministration is the recognition, again, that covenants are relational instruments. That's not just true scripturally. That's true in general, whether a covenant is a business contract or a marital contract or uh, you know, uh, a neighborhood covenant uh, that is established for the householders in terms of their responsibilities. They're always relational instruments, relational contracts that establish a relationship and define and prescribe the relationship between contracting parties. That's how covenant functions. 
in terms of scriptural covenants, God's covenants are always between him and his creation in some sense. They're not always strictly between God and people. You could think of the covenant that God made with Noah ultimately was his covenant with the whole creation. But God's covenants always pertain to him as the creator and that which he has created. And while covenants themselves, we can argue, provide their own mediation in that they provide definition and governance of the relationship, ultimately in God's covenants there is a human uh, aspect of that. There is a human point of, of, um, uh, of, of conjunction or, or intersection. Even if God's covenant is ultimately with the whole creation, as in the case of the covenant after the flood, Noah still stands at the, at the center of that. Human beings are always in the center of God's covenants. And the reason is, again, that God's relationship in the biggest kind of macro picture, God's covenants are the ways in which he relates to his creation. But by design, his relating to his creation is always in and through human beings who are both the image and likeness of God, but as creatures. And we see that even in the creation account, God's intent to relate to and be present in and interactive with his creation in and through the creature that he created in his own image and likeness to be the image son, to be the Lord through whom God exercises his own lordship over the works of his hands. So covenants sit within that basic overarching structure. But also, for that reason, that's the sense in which we say that covenants are founded in priesthood, or at least the idea of human mediation. There's, there's a human point of intersection between God and his covenants. Human beings are always at the center. But if if that's the case, if there's this, this necessary relationship between God's covenants and priesthood in that most general sense, then we also, and this is a point that the writer's presuming is understood, is that the nature of the covenant depends on and also is very closely connected with the nature of the mediation or administration behind it. That's why he says that the Mosaic Covenant was founded in the priesthood that God ordained to administer it. And if there's a change of priesthood, then there is accordingly, ipso facto, a change of covenant as well. The two go together. So the ways in which then Jesus' superior priesthood and priestly ministration, the ways in which that superiority exists, provide insight into the ways in which this covenant associated with his priesthood is superior. That's where he's ultimately going with this. He's shown the superiority in various ways of Jesus' priesthood, and that those arenas and, and those dimensions of superiority help us to see how it is that the covenant associated with that priesthood is itself superior. And at this point, at least in terms of what we've seen, we can say that there are a few ways in which just off the top of our head, we can say, okay, this is a superior covenant in association with that priesthood. 
And that's as we consider the priesthood, we see that it is, first of all, a fully effectual priesthood. The writer has shown that. It's fully effectual. It is everlasting. And it is the realized substance of which the Levitical priesthood was a shadow and a copy. So the Levitical ministration, uh, in comparison with Jesus' priesthood, we see that the superiority of his priesthood is tied to its effectuality, its durative nature, its everlasting, its enduring, and also the fact that it is the substance of which the Levitical priesthood was the shadow and copy. You see that in chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, and I'm not going to go back and rehearse all those passages, but those are the general ways in which he establishes the superiority. That gives us a sense of how it is that he refers to Jesus' ministration, his priestly ministration, as a more excellent ministry. He has been given or obtained, received as an endowment, a more excellent ministry ministry. And if we want to boil it all down in the most simplest way, as we've been emphasizing for weeks and weeks and weeks, it's the fact that he's a priest of a different order. What order? The order of Melchizedek. What does that mean? It's the order of the priest king. Jesus is uniquely the priest king who performs his priestly ministration in connection with God's true sanctuary as the enthroned king of kings. Not in the earthly sanctuary, which itself was a copy and a shadow, but in the very presence of God himself, where God sits as creator lord over all. So, First, we've seen that the Levitical priests ministered in a sanctuary where God was symbolically enthroned. God was enthroned on Mount Zion, more specifically enthroned in the sanctuary on Mount Zion, most specifically, as I've said, in the Holy of Holies, in terms of his Shekinah, between the wings of the cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant. And you see this in the Psalms, you see it in Isaiah, other places, this idea of Yahweh being enthroned between the wings of the cherubim. And even the imagery of, again, God's throne in heaven, the earth, the Ark of the Covenant is the footstool of his feet. A king would sit on a throne, but his feet were on a footstool that was, in a sense, a part of his throne. And as the bottom part of his body is resting here, the, and then his upper part is here. That imagery was used to express the way that the God of heaven, enthroned in heaven, is also enthroned in the earth. The sanctuary was the place where heaven and earth came together, centered in God's rule. The sanctuary was the intersection of heaven and earth. The way that it was adorned, the way that it was fitted out, the way that it was modeled showed that it represented a otherworldly phenomenon or, or um, physical manifestation, but on the earth. But it was the place in which God's own lordship was manifested and became real in the world. 
the place from which God exercised his dominion. That was the Levitical priesthood. On the other hand, the Messiah performs his priestly work not as entering into the place of God's symbolic enthronement, but as sharing God's very throne. He is the true image son through whom the creator Lord administers his loving and wise lordship over the works of his hands. That again is the picture of God's kingdom, his design for his world that you see in the creation account. The second thing is that the Levitical priests and their ministration, again, were a matter of shadow and copy. They both drew from, as a copy, there was a, a, a reality behind them that they were a copy of. And so they presumed a reality behind them, but they also projected forward to a fulfillment of what they represented. So they were both a copy and a prophetic prefiguration. Messiah's priesthood and his his priestly ministration is the very substance that lies behind the Levitical phenomenon, including the sanctuary itself. And why is that important? You know, even in our day and age, there are so many Christians who are obsessed with the idea of a temple in Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. Many of the Jews themselves are obsessed or very concerned with a rebuilt temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Well, what the scripture shows us is that the concept of sanctuary or temple has found its substance in the Messiah himself. He is the place where heaven and earth come together. He is the place where God's lordship is manifest and exercised in the world. He is the true temple. And therefore, the fulfillment of the sanctuary concept in the Messiah means that the other, con- the other sanctuary has served its purpose. Hence, ultimately, its destruction in 70 AD. So the shadow and the copy idea associated with the, the whole of the, the Levitical system, including the sanctuary itself, all of that has found its substance in the Messiah. The reality of his priesthood and priestly ministration is the eternal reality behind what was manifested in the Mosaic expression, but ultimately that which the Mosaic expression was looking to, in which the Levitical priesthood and its ministration has found its own destiny and fulfillment. So it's both the reality behind the Levitical priesthood and it's ultimately the destiny and the fulfillment of it. And then just one last point that the writer has made is that in particular the high priests in Israel, those high priests entered into God's throne room, if you will, the Holy of Holies where the Shekinah hovered as a luminescent phenomenon between the wings of the cherubim. The high priest entered in rarely briefly and fearfully. Once a year, very quickly, first to carry in the blood of the offering for himself and the priestly, his priestly family, and then to depart and come back in with a second offering of blood for the sake of the nation 
and the sanctuary and the covenant. The, the, he, he entered a second time to make atonement for the whole Israelite system, for the Israelite people, for the whole covenant reality, to renew things for a year. But he did so fearfully. He did so fearfully. Their ministration, the high priests in Israel, their ministration bore witness to and mediated ultimately the point of that whole day of atonement phenomenon once a year. It testified to the fact that their role was to mediate Israel's estrangement with God. The nation was estranged from God. The covenant son was estranged from God. And just as in the, in the case of Haggai, where he's asked for a ruling, if, if a, a piece of unclean uh, um, uh, meat or something touches something that's clean, does the cleanness pass to the unclean or the uncleanness pass to the clean? Ask the priest for a ruling. Well, what is the ruling? When clean and unclean come together, what is clean is defiled. It doesn't go the opposite direction. And God says, so are my people, and so is everything they touch and everything they do. You could say there's nothing unclean in the covenant. There's nothing unclean in the building of the sanctuary. There's nothing unclean in the implements and the altar and the table of showbread. And there's nothing, it's, it's, uncleanness is a human thing. But God said, everything associated with you is rendered unclean because of your uncleanness. And so the atonement on Yom Kippur dealt with the, the defilement of everything. God wanted them to know everything was defiled because of them. Their ministration, the high priest's ministration, attested to the estrangement of Israel from God. But the effect was that everything was associated with or, or implicated in that uncleanness, in that defilement. And that included those priests themselves. That's why they went in the first time with an offering for themselves. And the writer's already made that point, and he'll discuss these things further. These are all Israelite ideas that would have been very clear to his readers. They understood what he was getting at. The estrangement, the uncleanness that the high priest mediated for, that they interceded for, they themselves were subject to it. They had to make atonement for themselves. On the other hand, Jesus, he says, is seated in God's presence. It's not a brief, fearful, occasional, once-a-year entrance. He has taken his seat in the very presence of God, and even more, the writer has said, and this too will be developed out. But these ideas are important in how Jesus' better ministry implicates a better covenant. That's where I'm going with all of this. Jesus doesn't enter briefly. He doesn't enter fearfully. He has taken his permanent place at that place as the enthroned image son, mediating as a priest upon his throne, seated at the right hand of power. But the second piece of that is that through his own entrance, which has become a permanent phenomenon, he has granted permanent, everlasting, unqualified, open access to all who come before God in him. And that's a radical 
idea in terms of Israel's own existence. No Israelite would have, you know, outside of the priests, no Israelite would have even dared or could have gone into even the outer room of the tabernacle. God dwelt in the midst of his people, but at a distance. He was inside or away from them through multiple layers of fabrics that covered the sanctuary. And then there was the entrance into the outer room and then the entrance into the inner room. You know, he he was far away from them. And now as the Messiah has taken up his place as a permanent priest, permanently in the presence of God, all who are sharers in him, not just in terms of, okay, now God's happy with you, so he'll let you come near him. It's actually the idea ultimately in 2 Corinthians 5 and elsewhere. The great mystery is it's not just we can come into God's presence, but that we are taken up in the very life of God in the Messiah. We are seated in the heavenly places in him. We have open, full, unqualified access to the very presence of God because we are the dwelling of God in the spirit. You couldn't get a sheet of paper between us and God because we are taken up in his life in the Messiah. That's the intimacy that we have. That's the access that we have. That's what this covenant is ultimately all about. And we're going to see that as we flesh it out in Jeremiah's presentation of it. But that's the way in which there is a more excellent ministry. So we can say, okay, again, Jesus' ministration is one of full effectuality. It's fully efficacious. It's one that is untainted by sin. It's, it's one uh, that, that, that is everlasting. It's one that fulfills what the Levitical ministration uh, was a shadow and a copy of. All of those things are true. But again, it's, it's more than that. It's not less than that. It's more than that. The real issue in the more excellent ministry, the greater excellence of Jesus' ministration as our enthroned high priest, is that that reality is the essential core of God's purposes for his creation, it's not just his ministry is better because he's untainted by sin. His ministry is better um, because he, he, his priesthood fulfills what, what the previous one uh, only depicted. His priesthood, he has a better ministration because it's everlasting and the other one was transitory and passed away. It's, his ministration is superior because it's the very essence, it's the essential core of God's realization of his purpose for the creation. What was God's purpose for the creation? Paul says it was ultimately that he would gather the whole creation up to himself and even in himself in the sense that that could, could be realized, but he would establish this perfect intimacy with his creation, as Paul says, God being all in all, by summing up everything in the creation in himself, by summing it up in the Messiah himself. The gathering of his creation to himself to be able to exercise fully his wise and loving lordship over the works of his hands in and through the human creature, the image son that he created. And that reality, that purpose is what's expressed in the idea of Jesus' priesthood. 
He is the priest king, even as we are ordained to be priests and kings. That's our destiny as well. And I'm not saying anything I haven't said before, but these are things we have to understand if we're going to really get at the significance of what the writer is talking about and why it matters in this world that we're a part of and the difficulties of life. So that's the way in which he has a better ministration, and that allows us to begin to understand how that corresponds with a better covenant. He says he has a better ministration in just so much as, or to the extent that he is the mediator of a better covenant. He is a priest according to a different order, a unique order, a new order. Therefore, ipso facto, the covenant associated with his priesthood has to be new and different in the same sort of way. New and different in the same sort of way. Now, there's lots of ways we'll see in which this covenant is a new covenant, but he focuses here initially on a particular way in which it's a better covenant. He says it's enacted on better promises. Well, the obvious question ought to be, what do promises have to do with covenants? How are covenants enacted on promises? If this covenant is enacted on better promises, the implication is the Israelite covenant was enacted on promises, right? But lesser promises. Well, how is that the case? How is that the case? Well, first, generally, how is it that that promise is associated with the idea of covenant? It really takes us back to where I began today. Covenants are relational instruments, And as it pertains to God's covenants, scriptural covenants, they are defined, purposeful, relational structures that God establishes in order to disclose and to advance his designs, his intents, his purposes for the creation. That's the sense in which they are promissory because they disclose and advance and carry forward God's ultimate designs. In that way, there's promise that lies behind them. Well, what's the fundamental promissory idea that lies behind the Mosaic covenant? That's the, old, that's the covenant he's talking about here in terms of the lesser and the better. The covenant at Sinai, the Israelite covenant, what's the promise that lies behind it? The promise that lies behind it is itself a covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. Now, this might be clear to some of us. It might not be clear to others. But, you know, one of the the huge issues still even in the church today is the relationship amongst the covenants. But the simple answer to the question of what was the promise behind the, uh, the Israelite Sinai covenant, the promise behind it was the covenant with Abraham. I mean, it ought to be clear, but I'll just read a few verses here from from Exodus chapter 6. Now, this is when God has appeared to Moses. He sends him to Israel to deliver them from Egypt, but he explains to them, he he, he explains to Moses how to explain to Israel the significance of his coming to them. Time has passed. Israel's largely forgotten its God. It's suffering in Egypt. And Moses has to come and explain the meaning of his coming and what God is doing. 
Exodus 6.1, the Lord said to Moses, you shall now see what I will do to Pharaoh for under compulsion, he shall let them go, the people, and under compulsion, he shall drive them out of his land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourn. And furthermore, I've heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. I have remembered my covenant. They've forgotten it. I've remembered it. Say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you for my people. I will be your God. You will be my people, the Abrahamic promise. And I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh the covenant God. And he'd go on to tell him, when you bring the people out, bring them to me at this mountain and I will enter into covenant with them. So when God entered into covenant with Israel at Sinai, all he was doing was confirming his own faithfulness, following through on his own faithfulness. He was ratifying the Abrahamic covenantal relationship with Abraham's offspring. The promise behind the Mosaic covenant, the promise behind the Israelite covenant was itself the Abrahamic covenant. And again, that covenant, ultimately, the Abrahamic covenant, was founded on God's determination and his pledge, his covenant with Abraham. That covenant was founded on God's pledge to achieve his restorative and consummative purposes for his creation in and through Abraham. Specifically, God said to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then that passed from Abraham to Isaac, then from Isaac to Jacob. To each of those, the son and the grandson, God said the same thing, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. But ultimately, lying behind that was the promise of a seed in Genesis 3. the promise of a seed. And that gets bound up in Abraham. So yes, it's that all the families of the earth would be blessed, but as the human race is blessed in connection with Abraham and his offspring, that blessing then will be mediated to the whole creation because the knowledge and the rule and the wisdom and the love of God will be manifest throughout the creation through the human race that has entered into the blessing through the seed of Abraham. So the children of of Israel were that offspring. That's the sense in which they were the children of promise. So the promises underlying God's covenant with Israel, those promises weren't really just about them as the Jewish people or about them as a nation. They were ultimately about the role that Israel would play in God's purposes. God's promise to Israel was that they, as the Abrahamic covenant offspring, were to be his instrument for blessing the whole of the creation.
And again, that blessing to the whole world of men, every tribe and tongue and family and people, that blessing would entail human beings coming to know their creator father in truth. How would that knowledge be imparted? It would be imparted through Israel, the image son, manifesting its sonship faithfully in the world. We've talked about it before. Biblically, a son is of the father. In the son, you see the father. That's what Jesus is getting at when he says, you see me, you see the father. It's Israelite stuff that they would have understood. A son is of the father. And so Israel's faithful sonship manifested in the world would have caused the world of men to say, okay, we see what the Father, we see what this God is like. We look at the Son and we can see what the Father is like. Abraham's offspring would fulfill their own calling. They'd fulfill their own promise bound up in covenant through their faithful sonship. And that's what the covenant at Sinai was all about. It really defined and prescribed Israel's sonship. That's how Paul can later say, whatever the law had to say, it had its pleroma, its fullness, its true essence in what? The obligation of love. Love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when that relationship is what it ought to be, it will manifest itself in that divine love being expressed at the human level. Love your neighbors yourself. In that hangs all the law and the prophets. That's what it's all about. So the covenant at Sinai had behind it the promise of God that ultimately took us all the way back to the garden and God's intent for his creation in and through his human creature. And God bound that up in Abraham, and he now carries that covenant promise and relationship forward with Abraham's offspring, the sons of Israel. But it was about, again, them manifesting, them living faithfully as image children in the world in order that God's blessing would flow out to all the families of the earth. That's what it was all about. Well, that helps us then to understand what the fault was. The writer has said, if that, were, if that were it, if that were sufficient, there wouldn't have been a place, an occasion. There wouldn't be a need for anything beyond that. Behind the Israelite covenant lay the promise of universal blessing through faithful sonship. The fault had to do with the failure at that point. It wasn't an issue of morality, per se. It wasn't an issue of religiosity, per se. It was a failure at the point of sonship. Now, obviously, that implicates morals and ethics and the things that we think of in terms of sin, but that wasn't really the issue, not in the sense that we tend to think about it. It was the failure at the point of sonship, if you will, failure at the point of Israel fulfilling its own identity and calling, its Abrahamic vocation. The failure was in the fact that the covenant could not bring to pass the promise that lay behind it, the promise that was really the matter that it was concerned with. And the simple reason, again, is that Israel was incapable of fulfilling its sonship. This is the way Isaiah's prophecy begins and ends. Sons I have reared, and yet they do not know me. 
An ox knows its master, a donkey knows its manger, but my sons don't know me. They are unfaithful children. Even the, 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 the covenant idea of, of uh, God establishing this covenant with Zion to bear children for him, he says, Zion's a harlot. She bears harlotrous children. Israel was incapable of fulfilling its sonship. The son that was supposed to make the father known to the rest of the alienated world shared the same alienation. The son who was supposed to mediate the blessing of God was in need of the same blessing. The son shared the same predicament. Israel couldn't be the solution to the problem because it was a part of the problem. That's the sense in which the first covenant wasn't faultless, or to put it positively, the first covenant was faulted. It wasn't the covenant itself. It wasn't this purpose of God and the promise of God and the covenant by which sonship would be manifested in the world. There wasn't any fault with that. The fault was with the human parties to the covenant. And the writer says that. He says, finding fault with them in verse 8. He doesn't say finding fault with the covenant, finding fault with them, he says, days are coming when I will make a new covenant. So there was a need for covenant renewal. Covenant renewal. A covenant renewal that would solve the problem of the unfaithfulness of the human parties to the covenant. And that would not and could not be accomplished by merely reviving the Mosaic Covenant relationship. What was needed was a renewed covenant relationship in which Israel became Israel in truth. And I'm not denying the existence of the Jewish people or the ethnicity of of Jews or Israel or anything like that. But biblically, Israel is as much a concept as a people. Israel represents son, servant, disciple, witness, human instrument through which all the families of the earth would be blessed. Israel is image son. That's how Israel can be embodied in one man, the Messiah. That's how he can be Israel, because he is in himself what that idea of Israel was to be, defined by covenant, defined by God's design. Israel had to become Israel in truth. This needed to be a renewal in which the covenant people actually were what the covenant defined and prescribed. And that's, in fact, what God promised. He promised that all the way back, at least you find it in Deuteronomy 30. After the blessings and the cursings have come upon you, then the days will come when you will return to me in truth, and I will give you a new heart, and I will restore you. The promise of covenant renewal, at the very least, is present by the end of Deuteronomy And that's what the writer is bringing to the forefront here as he draws uh, from Jeremiah 31. You see the same thing in Ezekiel 34, 36, 37. The promise of a covenant renewal that would amount to the 
human parties to the covenant actually being what the covenant prescribed them to be. And as I mentioned, the fact that the, the writer cites this whole section of Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah 31, shows that he regarded it as very important. He didn't want to just pull a piece out that would kind of you know, be like a thread connecting the rest. He wanted to explicitly put it all in there. And that shows at least that he, he, he saw a crucial importance in them seeing all of this, but more than that, grasping the significance of what this new covenant is, what it is that has come in the Messiah. And this is how I want to, want to conclude today, because to us, a lot of this may seem, okay, well, that's fine and good, you know, that, well, there's no big deal with this. This was a huge deal in terms of the salvation history. The idea of covenant renewal being a new covenant was something that was very strange and difficult for Israel. These things were not foreign to Israel's scriptures, and yet the New Testament shows us, we've seen this in in many ways, certainly through the book of Acts, uh, Galatians. The New Testament shows us that the early Christians, who were all Jewish, were proselytes to Judaism, they actually wrestled with the implications of the Messiah and the Messianic work. This wasn't as clear to them as it may seem to be to us. Not just the implications for the Gentiles, though that was true, but the implications for them as Jews. This is what Paul's dealing with in Galatians. The the issue isn't, do you work your way into heaven or is it a matter of God's grace? We've imposed that. That's not what Galatians is about. That's not what Acts 15 is about. Jesus' death and resurrection forced his disciples, forced his Jewish disciples to have to rethink everything about the Messiah, the messianic work, the messianic kingdom. And the thing that they struggled with the most, it was a gradual process, it was a difficult process, but but where they struggled the most were with the issues that were at the very center that were definitive in Israel's covenant life with God. Torah, circumcision. Torah and circumcision. Two things that more than anything else defined what Israel was and what it meant for Israel to be the covenant people of God and to be faithful as the covenant people of God. The early church's struggle with Torah observance shows that there was uncertainty about the impact of Jesus' death and resurrection on this thing called the Law of Moses. And if we think it's not a big deal, those disputes continue to this day. What is the role and the place of the law of Moses for the new covenant community? In what sense are we under law? Oh, we're not under law. We're under grace. Really? Well, okay. Well, these things are at the center of debates that continue to this day. And they were at the forefront of the early church's grappling with what it means that the Messiah has renewed the covenant. They didn't deny covenant renewal. The prophets said that was coming. Israel's failure had fractured the covenant, right? 
And God testified to that by the fact that he departed his sanctuary. And later he destroyed his sanctuary. And he destroyed the, the very throne and kingdom of Israel. It had been localized by, by the end in just Jude and Benjamin, centered at Jerusalem with a, a son of David on the throne. But God destroyed that house. He destroyed that throne. He destroyed even the Davidic dynasty or cut it off in Jehoiakim, right? He took it all away and he sent them into exile. The covenant was in shatters on the, it was shattered and in tatters on the ground. But the prophet said, God will renew the covenant. He will renew the covenant. And these believers in Jesus, Jewish believers, and even as Gentiles were coming in, but the Jewish believers did not doubt that Jesus had renewed the covenant. But it begged the question, what does that look like? How do we understand it in relation to Israel's covenant relationship with God that began at Sinai that presupposed the covenant with Abraham? What does it mean to be the people of God in the light of the Messiah? They struggled with this, and you see that the Torah observance questions. How do we stand in relation to Torah, the covenant at Sinai? And I think a primary reason for this is the fact that the prophets, the scriptures, frame the promise of renewal in Israelite terms. The way the prophets spoke about renewal gave the people reasonable expectation that when God did this work in the Messiah, it would be the reviving of what they had known before. God was going to resurrect David's house. He was going to raise up a Davidic king. He was going to set a a son of David on the throne. And he was going to raise up David's fallen tabernacle, his house, his throne, his kingdom. He was going to renew the covenant. He was going to liberate the exiles. He was going to purge and cleanse them through the Messiah and regather them. And he was going to return and take his place again in his sanctuary. All of that was Israelite language that was expressed in a way that would lead them to expect, okay, we're going back to the way that things were before. Well, to me at least, the way my mind works, I, I ask the question, and I have been asked this before, why did God have the prophets represent things in that way if it was going to ultimately be tend towards misleading? If, if it was going to tend to have, uh, create this kind of confusion and, and have uh, these, these early Jewish Christians wrestle with, with trying to reconcile all these things, why did God represent this covenant renewal in that way? Why didn't he do it in a different way? Was he being disingenuous? Well, the answer, the, the, the simple answer, is that to convey the truth of the Messiah and the Messianic work and the Messianic kingdom, he had to use that form of presentation. But at the same time, God also made it clear that what was going to come was not simply the restoring of the former order. He expressed these things in Israelite terms Again, because of the centrality of Abraham and the Abrahamic people. This saving, renewing, restoring work in the Messiah associated with the covenant renewal had Israel at the center of it. 
I've said before, we tend to view the structure of the salvation history as creation, fall, Christ, perfection, or glorification. But it's creation, fall, Israel, Christ, glorification, or perfection. By God's own design, his blessing would flow out to the world through the Jewish people, the seed of Abraham, by his own design. That's what Paul means when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God, to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. Why, are they better? Why does he pick the Jews first? Is it because they're in the Old Testament and we don't come along till the New Testament? It's because the purpose for the world was in and through Israel as Israel would become embodied in the Messiah and reconstituted in him. It's the reason why the initial core of believers, the the foundational superstructure on Jesus, was a Jewish superstructure. He was reconstituting the 12 tribes in himself. And you see this through the book of Acts. To the Jew first and then to the Greek. Because by God's design, it would not be until the Jewish people, that's why, and we'll see this, the covenant with Israel and Judah. And this has caused some theologians and scholars to say, well, there must be two new covenants, because this one's just for the Jewish people. How does this work? But it's because, again, of that primacy in God's purposes. In Abraham, through Abraham, to the world. God would have to make Israel become Israel in order for them the blessing to go out to the rest of the world and ultimately to gather in uh, the whole creation. This is why Paul can prove his thesis of God's long-standing intent to save the Gentiles. He can demonstrate that scripturally by pointing to Hosea 1 and 2 that have nothing to do with the Gentiles. I don't know if you've noticed that before, but those one and two have nothing to do with Gentiles. It has to do with how when God raises up a new leader, a messianic leader, he will restore and reconcile the two houses of Israel. At the point that Hosea is writing, Israel and Judah are separate. They're each going into their own captivity. They're each going to have their own destiny of destruction. He's going to preserve Judah for a while, But ultimately, Judah will go away too. But he's going to bring them back together. This is what you see in in Isaiah 11 and other places, Isaiah 49. Paul points to a passage that has nothing to do with the Gentiles to say there's proof of God's longstanding intent to save the Gentiles. How can he do that? Because Paul understands from the larger scriptural witness, the way the Old Testament builds its case, that when God does this restoring work, when he brings, he reconstitutes Israel in the Messiah, then his salvation will go out to the nations. So if he can point to something that says, here's how and when God will do this thing of restoring the Abrahamic people, Israel and Judah in that way, then I've proven my point concerning the Gentiles. And again, you see this throughout the prophets. So God must restore Israel that Israel would be made equipped and able to fulfill its mission as the covenant seed of Abraham to the Jew first and then to the Greek. 
So the prophets spoke in Israelite terms of this covenant renewal because it was a future renewal that had Israel at its heart. It would be a cosmic renewal, but it would be grounded in the renewal of the Abrahamic seed in the one who would embody Israel. And I'm not trying to put a bunch of sterile theology out there. This is the way that the scripture does, it tells its story and does its work. This is how we have to understand what's come in this new covenant. So yes, God promised through the prophets renewal of the covenant, but a renewal in which the relationship expressed by the covenant, the relationship of father and son, would actually become truly and fully realized. The Mosaic covenant, the law of Moses, prescribed and defined that relationship, but it couldn't see it realized. Israel needed to be renewed. It needed to be made new not just regathered and reconstituted under the former order of things. Nothing would have changed. If it was simply restored from exile and the reviving of the Mosaic economy, you would still have a fallen nation unable to fulfill its election. So the prophets promised a renewal, Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37. A renewal in the inner man. A new covenant relationship in the sense that the realization of the covenant relationship that God had intended all along. And that's precisely what God promised through Jeremiah. So this, he he details this whole section of Jeremiah 31 in the balance of, of chapter 8 of Hebrews to show how it is that Jesus mediates a covenant based on better promises. The Sinai covenant was enacted on the Abrahamic covenant and its promises. And the covenant in Jesus is also enacted on that same Abrahamic covenant and promises. So what's the difference? The covenant in Jesus stands on the further promise, the further pledge that Yahweh would see the promises that underlay his relationship with Israel. He would see those promises and their obligations fulfilled, not by the covenant children, but through them. As they would become the people of Israel indeed by sharing in the Messiah. That's Galatians 3. Why the law? Why Sinai? Why that step in the process if it was all bound up in Abraham? Because it served the process. It served as a pedagogue until the fullness of time should come. But the promise was ultimately to the one seed. Israel's the Abrahamic seed, but ultimately that was one seed, the one who embodies Israel, the Messiah himself. And therefore, he is the one who fulfills the Mosaic Covenant, not because he does all of the works that are in it in the way that we think about it. He fulfilled the covenant because he never sinned in the sense that it said, do this and he did it. Don't do this. He didn't do it. But in the sense that he is the son, servant, disciple, witness. He is the truth of what Israel was called to be. He is the image son. And therefore, all who share in him are that We are a part of this reconstituted Israel in him, the Israel of God. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. What matters is a new creation. 
Paul says, to all who walk according to that Torah, mercy and peace be upon them, even upon the Israel of God. And there's a lot more that needs to be said, but this is the basic way in which the superiority of this new covenant works. And it becomes important, saints, because there's still debate that goes on to this day within dispensationalism and reform theology and all over the place about, okay, you know, are we still under the law? Well, we're under this part of the law, but we're not under that part of the law. Well, what about theonomy? You know, what about, what about this? What about that? The dispensational view of, well, Israel's got its covenant. It's going to come back in the millennium again. Now we're under grace. We're not under law. All of this confusion and the stuff that goes on out there is because of a failure to understand these basic ideas in the way that the scripture builds its case. But even more than the theological arguments, and this is where I want to leave it today, is the recognition, again, that what God rightfully created and requires of his human creature this obligation and privilege and glory of being imaged children, he has accomplished that in himself, in the Messiah. This is the beginning of Romans 8. What the law, what what Sinai couldn't do, weakened by the sin nature. It it could not make the covenant sons be covenant sons in truth. God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus entered into our own brokenness. He became what we are in order to heal and restore what we are, that we would become what God created us to be in him. He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, to be a sin offering. He condemned sin in his flesh, not just by the cross, but by an entire life beginning with the point of the incarnation of living in contradiction of this humanness that he was born into. And he did so in order that the righteousness which the law spoke of might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit. What is the righteousness that the law prescribed? Not a moral code, a human code. Sons, servants, witness, disciple, image children through whom the blessing of God fills his creation. That's what we were created for. That's what Sinai was talking about, referring back again to what God had pledged through Abraham all the way back in Genesis 3. And as those who are sharers in the Messiah, we become, 2 Corinthians 5, we become in ourselves what was embodied in those covenantal structures because we become that in the Messiah. He doesn't say that we do the righteousness of God in the sense of of righteousness viewed as commandments or whatever. We embody in ourselves the truth, the rightful, right, truthful reality of what God intended all along. Paul's talking about witness, testimony, right? 2 Corinthians 5. That's what he's talking about there, how we plead with men, be reconciled to God. We embody in ourselves, we are the living testimony of God's work of reconciliation and what he desires for human beings. We embody, we've become that righteousness in ourselves. That's what the glory of the new covenant is. 
They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. I will put Torah, the truth of who I am, the truth of who they are, I will put the truth in them. I will write it on their hearts. I will write it in their minds. They will be my children indeed. When we get into all the arguments about do we have to keep this law, do we have to keep that law, well, the moral law, but not the ceremonial law, well, but this, but that, we, we just, we muddy and we, in my mind, just defile the glory of what this is really all about. And I hope as we work through this that that will become more clear in our minds, but in a way not just that it'll be clear in our minds, but it'll be inflamed in our hearts. This is what it's all about. This is the way in which the one who has a superior ministry is the mediator of a better covenant enacted on better promises. Father, I pray that you would help us to meditate on these things, to think on them, to to do business with them. We can't, nobody can grow for us. Nobody can mature in Christ for us. Nobody can give us a formula or a pill or a recipe to do that. We grow up in all things into Christ who is the head by wrestling, by grappling, by thinking, by meditating, by contemplating, by prayerful exercise and labors. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. And Father, I fear that we we all too obviously show the lack of preciousness and glory that we ascribe to these things, that they are so much backburnered in our life. If we even open the Bible, we, we do it to put in our daily reading or to do our five-minute devotional or to do a study of a particular word or doctrine or whatever it happens to be. We are not a people who are given to finding the reality of Torah written on our hearts and our minds meditating on these things day and night, that we would be like the tree planted by the streams of water that bears forth its fruit in season and whose leaf never withers, the one in whom we prosper in all things. Not prospering in the world's sense of that, but prospering in affliction, prospering in destitution, prospering in suffering, prospering because Our humanness is being made to thrive and grow and be glorified in the Messiah. It was no accident that Paul could say those that are justified are glorified, even now. Father, may we be a people who labor to see and to grow up and to reflect in ourselves the fullness of your glory that is in the face of Christ our Lord. May we be Christians indeed, those who seek in all things to testify to that profound, inscrutable, all-comprehending glory. Help us in these things. Don't let us be lazy. Don't let us be careless. Deal with the lethargy, the complacency, even the, the dullness and, and, and the lack of, of right esteem that fits in our hearts and in our minds. Cause us by your grace and your spirit to grow up in all things into Christ who is the head. That he would be glorified in the church, in the world, unto all eternity.
Amen.